Well, this is Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Jim Grant, and uh, with me, as always, is uh, the great Deputy Editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. Good afternoon, Evan. Good afternoon. And um, you can tell by that uh, the slight interval between my greeting and Evan's response that we are not in the same place, although sound travels at the speed of sound, doesn't it? Pretty fast, but still, I am upstate New York, and Evan is in the terrific borough of Brooklyn. And today, it's not just Evan and Jim chin-pulling about uh, trends in finance. We have with us Michael Knott, who is the managing director and a managing director and head of U.S. Uh, REIT Research. That's R-E-I-T, Research at Green Street. And um, I'm going to give you some of Michael's other CV highlights in just a moment. Just a moment. But first, I'm going to let you chew on this one. Michael earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics with distinction from Indiana University, Bloomington, Indiana. And uh, I think school, that's, right, Jim? That, that's about as enough of an introduction anyone, as anyone needs, but there'll be more in just a moment. But in the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, Michael and Evan, I want to uh, ask you if the word uh, Nathan Evans means anything to you. Nathan Evans, to, to, to narrow this down a little bit, Nathan Evans, age 26, of Airdrie, Scotland, just outside of Glasgow. Does that name ring a bell? No. No? Evan? No. no. Um, Nathan Evans, on December 27th, got it into his head to upload a sea chatty from the 19th century, an American sea chatty called Wellerman. This is a song uh, sung by whaling uh, sailors uh, awaiting the arrival of a supply ship. I guess someone in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, you know, sea chatty, right? And uh, we learned them in, in the fifth grade or something. And um, so this is on TikTok on December 27th. And about two days later, I'm not sure how many uploads or downloads it earned two days later, but if you, if you click on now, Wellerman Nathan Evans, you find 3.6 million views. That's just one version of this TikTok thing. This thing has gone viral the world over. And uh, I bring this up, first of all, because it's an amazing thing. And secondly, because it speaks so much to our time of digital intimacy and physical isolation. It has to do with the popularity of this. Popularity is you know, a weak water word for what happened to this guy and this, uh, this production. It's a well-known thing. It's just, a, you know, if, if you were born, say, in the 20th century, as some of us were, and if you're, if you're born in the middle of the 20th century, yeah, if you were born in the first half of the 20th century, as some of us on this call were, it is almost incredible to consider these things. But I think, in a way, it speaks to the discussion we were about to have about uh, real estate uh, with the aforementioned Michael Knott, who is uh, head of U.S. research at Green Street, as I mentioned. He, uh, almost all of his career is at, uh, is at Green Street. He was at Blackstone for a spell, where he was the CFO of a, a U.S. office platform called EQ Office. And then he started out um, way back when at A.G. Edwards, not so far way back when. He's a CFA and knows all there is worth knowing on the subject of uh, interest-bearing real estate securities called real estate investment trusts. So, um, Michael, belatedly. And, and an uh, avid somewhat... uh, Grants fan. Dude, I, I didn't catch that last thing, Mike. Can you say that? Uh... I said, uh, and, and an avid Grants <laughs> fan and paid up subscriber. Why, thank you. And that, that's, that's only part of the reason why Michael not is appearing with us today. Uh, by no means the, uh, the preeminent reason, but uh, it's a great reason, too. Michael, I, uh, Evan uh, pointed this out to me, and I, I have just finished reading with the greatest. Uh, uh, curiosity and uh, with some satisfaction, um, something that uh, your team produced uh, 
on uh, just recently, this, this month in February, first you know, or so week of February, and it's called the, the headline of this thing is Herd Community, whatever pun, and it's about um, uh, the rise, and it's kind of a Jane Jacobs thing on cities, right? It's the rise and fall of cities in the context uh, post-Jane Jacobs of work from home and the uh, and our, our present technology that uh, you know has uh, skyrocketed Nathan Evans to uh, start at the age of 26, and now it's it's uh, it's shaking up uh, the United States of America. So, uh, Michael Knott, is there hope for the real estate values in the city of New York? Yeah, so it's uh, great to be on with both of you. Thanks for having me. So just to set the stage for, for a second, so uh, for those that aren't familiar, Green Street is a, a shop, research shop, uh, uh, started in 85, focused on uh, really providing great insights to both public and private market participants in, in commercial real estate. We're, I think, uniquely positioned to uh, help uh, our clients uh, deliver uh, deliver insights to them on both those fronts. We think it's important in the real estate world, given the I was, was going to say, I was gonna private say and that. public to be, yeah, yeah to be, uh, I, I to be bilingual and so that's something we think yeah. a lot about. I was going to say exactly that, but you said oh, well, thanks. It. So Michael, um, Evan and I have, we're office at 233 Broadway, which is uh, kind of near city hall, lower Manhattan. And what we can't help but know is that nobody comes to work, at least not in the building. And, um, this, of course, is by no means unique at 233 Broadway, the old Woolworth building, the great dowager of New York City skyscrapers. It happens to be ubiquitous throughout Manhattan, and I dare say the outlying boroughs as well. Like uh, these buildings are standing, not quite empty, but the point survives the exaggeration. How are they valued, and ought they to be valued as they are valued? Yeah, so it's it's a really intriguing question, and there's there's a bunch of different angles here we could talk about in terms of the economy, in terms of COVID winners and losers. Although I think, uh, in our view, COVID analytically uh, is is almost passe now. We focused a lot on it in the last nine to uh, ten, twelve months. Um, been really important, but I think we're we're starting to move past it. But there have been some sectors and some property types that have been greatly impacted. We've had a huge divergence between winners and losers across the almost 20 different property types that we cover. So there's there's lots of different types of real estate to talk about. Obviously, office is one of the oldies and goodies. New York is the, the most important U.S. office market, arguably, uh, certainly the largest. And so there have been, with COVID, some uh, acceleration of trends that were likely to happen anyway. We could talk more about that. Retail, for example, being a, a having negative impact from e-commerce, industrial benefiting. We think some of these trends will last beyond COVID. And office is one example of that. And so just to set the stage for a second, all the way back in, I think it was May or June, I think we were one of the first firms out there to put a forecast that we thought office would, would see a, a pretty meaningful impact from changing behaviors as it relates to, to work from home and how folks are adapting their daily routines. And so we initially said, hey, we think office will see between a 10 to 15% hit to demand as a result of these changing behaviors, which is a pretty strong statement. And as time has gone on since then in the last six to eight months, there have been a number of, uh, countless actually, I'd say uh, a big number of surveys of uh, company announcements, particularly in the tech sector, about how they uh, interact with their employees and how they um, how they all work together, uh, remote remote first or hybrid. Uh, so we think the office will survive and it will be an important part of how companies 
teach their employees, how they collaborate, how they engage, how they provide culture to their employees and maintain that ongoing sense of continuity of uh, employees and managers. So we think the office will survive, but we, we think there will be a, a negative impact. So your question was specifically about New York and about office. Um, office utilization has been, as you pointed out, pretty low since the onset of COVID. And New York really has been no different, in fact, probably worse than, than a lot of places. So, so we think office is a sector that is fraught with challenges from, from an economic standpoint. It's a difficult business, a lot of CapEx, and it's been, it's been so-so for, for most of the past decade compared to a lot of other property types and compared to how office has performed in other up cycles since the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so office, our, our outlook's a little bit uh, dour, I would say, compared, compared to most. But, again, there's been a lot of the uh, Michael, headlines. Yeah. Uh, getting back to the question of price, um, for much of the last decade, pensions and sovereign wealth funds treated New York Class A office buildings almost like they were inflation-protected bonds. They were willing to pay almost any price for them because they thought these are trophy assets in gateway cities, and they'll get you know inflation pricing or more over time. Have we begun to see a reappraisal by global investors? And if so, are we seeing cap rates gap down or gap up for um, new, uh, high-end New York office buildings? I think before COVID hit, they were actually trading with like a three-handle, so 3% and change. Is that still true? I- I'd love to get a sense of pricing today. Yeah, sure. So, uh, we, we like to look to both the private market and the public market to get a sense of, of pricing. We think the public market, uh, again, going back to my point about being bilingual in commercial real estate, uh, public market can can tell you a lot. There's a lot of aspects that are leading indicators. And so uh, most property types trade in the public market. Um, several trade at a premium to underlying private market asset value. Office continues to trade at a very large discount, and this has been persistent for, for quite a while. So uh, in the public market, uh, the average uh, cap rate across office generally is, is uh, 7%, about a 20% discount to private market values. Um, and in the public market for some of the New York REITs, uh, you, you can find cap rates uh, on, say, an SL Green uh, in the mid-sixes. Uh, but some of the other players with New York office exposure are into the sevens. Uh, so cap rates have moved up pretty meaningfully. And I should point out that for the totality of COVID, office has been uh, the biggest loser across uh, sectors in the public market. Um, you know, he's had a pretty big recovery in some of the more challenged property types since uh, the vaccine news came out in, in November. So totality, last February to date, office is uh, the biggest decliner on an unlevered enterprise value basis in the public market. And in the private market, there hasn't been um, a ton of trades to really give us a great uh, view into where private market values are. Um, In our NAVs, which we we focus a lot on high-quality NAV estimates for all the uh, 80-plus REITs that we cover, including uh, almost 20 different office REITs, many of which are focused in New York. And, um, you know, for example, uh, for some of those Folks, we're using cap rates, uh, so again, private market values, cap rates uh, on, on 22 NOI uh, in the mid-5% range, uh, sometimes um, a, a bit lower. So they have moved up. I think pre-COVID, New York office cap rates had been uh, inching up a little bit. There was a lot of, uh, again, pre-COVID, a lot of questions about 
uh, cap rates for, say, single assets versus larger portfolios and this idea of a portfolio discount, uh, which is a big contrast to uh, the mania that you almost had, I would yeah. describe, mania Michael, in, in 06 and 07, uh, where New York Michael, office Michael, let's, was, let's, in fact, let's, trading let's, at three caps. Michael, let, let's bring this down to the level of the uh, – uh, of the investor, not down at the level, but let's clarify for the interest of the retail investors looking for yield. So if you would please give us um, an example, a kind of a composite example of where one of these real estate investment trusts might have been trading in the last uh, days of 2019 before we all heard about the big bug, and then where it's trading today. This is with respect to dividend yield received. Um so I don't have that dividend yield pre-COVID off offhand. Uh, we we focus more on real estate values, expected returns. Uh, we we look at well, just, uh, just overall express earnings. It any, express uh, it any way you want to, but how has valuation changed? Yeah. So again, going back to this analysis of of uh, enterprise values, so a company as a whole, including including debt, so an unlevered basis, um, office. Um, Office is the, the biggest loser across the different property types, and it's down something like uh, something like 20 percent, um, which is the worst across different property types. So uh, COVID has said New York values are, are down uh, quite a bit um, as a result of as a result of COVID. Yeah, that's um, down 20 percent, of course, is a, is, a, is a big fat number, but it's not so big and not so fat as like the down 80 percent or more of people who actually go into these things to work. And I'm wondering whether uh, the market has truly taken the measure of, as you put it in your uh, February 9th uh, piece on, uh, on the, the tail risk. Yeah. The, the, the intriguing thing about this, this uh, essay, by the way, is this posted on the Green Street uh, website or is this uh, for clients only or how may our listeners if at all, they see it. This is yeah. We're we're a subscription a subscription okay, research fair enough. Okay. model. So I so, won't yeah. give away too much of this, but I will say I will say that this is an this uh, this essay is an intriguing comparison of what happened to uh, such cities as Detroit, um, right? Uh, from starting the mid mid twentieth century, and it holds out the uh, the possible analogy that um, uh, I don't know that uh, what um, that air conditioning was the seminal. Uh, technology that changed migration patterns and real estate values in the middle of the 20th century and a little bit before that, right. but principally the mid to late 20s. And uh, that redistributed the population of the United States uh, into the Sun Belt. So uh, this uh, Green Street essay asked provocantly, provokingly, interestingly, uh, whether Zoom might not be the air conditioning of the 21st century, in which uh, one suddenly has can throw out all preconceptions about where one must be between the hours of nine and five, and this could have possibly a very, very, um, uh, what's the word, disruptive consequences for the real estate values of say New York and San Francisco and other so-called gateway right, cities. Right. Right. Yeah. To be to be very clear, we're we're um, concerned about uh, New York and San Francisco. Um, we think there will continue to be uh, migration to the suburbs uh, and then some migration toward the Sun Belt. Uh, we think that uh, the COVID trends, the work from home, the Zoom, um, uh, fiscal health being poor, particularly in New York, we'll see what happens in terms of um, you know, funding from federal government bailouts. But we think there's, 
all kinds of factors that suggest that this mega trend of the last 20 plus years of urbanization uh, could stop or potentially uh, even reverse yeah. a little bit. And I think Evan mentioned a minute ago, sort of the institutional investor um, love affair with, with New York buildings. And, and that's been the case, you know, as this mega trend of urbanization has played out to the benefit of gateway markets uh, in a big way, but we're concerned that over the next 10 years that, that these trends will, will work against some of these places. Um, you know, we, we, and, we, we grants, grants produced a piece uh, in uh, June of 1999, and the headline was The Economic Consequences of Air Conditioning. And we wrote this, um, I remember it because I wrote it. And um, I remember very well the, the provocation for this piece was the uh, Internet bubble and the crazy prices that people were paying for such obviously temporary business models as Amazon.com. My bad. Um, but uh, what, what I did was to trace the, uh, the economic consequences of and the business model of and the financial valuation of the air conditioning revolution. And what uh, I discovered looking back through old data was that um, Carrier Corp, which was the, I don't know, kind of the, uh, what would Carrier Corp have been in some, as a metaphor, as a, know, a little bit like Amazon and its dominance of a, a technology. Um, it was trading in the, in the 50s when it, the, the, the business of air conditioning was then thriving it was trading at 5.2 times trailing net income and 2.4 times annualized net income of the latest uh, very prosperous fiscal quarter. And the stock yielded four and a quarter percent. Treasuries were 265. So this this was um, this was the agent of this revolutionary change in American migration and real estate patterns, and it was valued as if it were, well, it was valued as if the world had had a 20-year only break from the depression of the 30s and the World War of the 40s. So it shows you a little bit, I thought then, and I think now I'm rereading it, it shows you that uh, the innovation is not everything. It's the context in which innovation occurs that can have a lot to do with the way assets are valued. And yes, I, including, I would suppose, uh, office and uh, other commercial real estate values. So these things today are valued in the context of free money, the expectation of more right. free money, the expectation right. of unlimited fiscal support. And maybe that's the reason why uh, I say only down 20%. It's not going to seem only to people who are holding the securities, but it seems like a, a fairly mild pullback. Evan, you had came across on a Bloomberg story about uh, – about the bargains that are not present where you would expect them to be, right? Like a hotel business? Right. Yeah, uh, Bloomberg had a report two weeks ago, and they basically said um, it's the worst year that hotels had faced basically in modern history, and I don't think anybody yes, would argue that. That's right. You would you would expect like hotels there. to be cheap because of that. <laughs> but <laughs> you would expect hotels to be cheap because of this, but because there's so much money chasing distressed assets, in fact, there's no bargains to be had. And that seems one of the contradictions right. for this market. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, as you're well aware, right, there's just unprecedented amounts of um, fiscal stimulus that's likely to continue to come. Uh, there's been unprecedented monetary um, monetary stimulus uh, from from the Fed. So uh, I, I think it's 
we're, we're going to continue to have this, I think, K-shaped economic recovery thanks to K Street in D.C. Uh, we, we are we, we could talk more about the, the economic outlook uh, later, perhaps. But but we, we are uh, there's there's some interesting things there as it relates to, uh, you know, the, the underlying health looks really good right now. Uh, concerns about debt and demographics, the Van Hoisington type views. But as it relates specifically to to lodging, yeah, it's an unprecedented uh, operating environment uh, to the downside. Uh, they are uh, they've been the hotel REITs have been reporting uh, greater than 100% declines year over year in EBITDA. So they are um, they, you know they're unprofitable at the at the property level right now. But they are uh, at least the big sponsors and operators are. Uh, almost uniformly securing um, multiple rounds of covenant waivers from their lenders. So uh, there's been, you know, in part due to all the stimulus and uh, everything that you cited, uh, there really has not been any kind of feeding frenzy or opportunities to capitalize on that operating distress uh, because the, yeah. the environment is so liquid. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask you one thing about that, Michael. Um, so you're in Newport, California, which shows that you know more about where to live than uh, I do, and it kind of uh, uh, shows that Green Street knows real estate better than I do. But um, walking through Brooklyn or Manhattan right now, you can't, are struck by the number of restaurants that are closed, retail stores that have boarded doors, um, office buildings that are largely empty. But we're not seeing like a lot of landlords mail their keys back to banks, and we're not seeing a lot of distressed transactions. Part of that was due because uh, the CARES Act allowed banks to defer problem loans, and a lot of banks gave deferrals, especially to commercial landlords. Um, just given what you see in terms of supply and demand and the kind of trends in work from home, do you think that we're going to see more workouts in commercial real estate? And if so, how big is this problem? Uh, so I think within the office space I mentioned earlier, uh, we, we think there could be a 10 to 15% type hit to demand over time. There will be winners and losers within the office industry. Uh, there will be winners within a given market. There will be winners and losers across markets. And we think Sunbelt will be a winner. Places like Austin, Miami, uh, Nashville, um, Raleigh, uh, et cetera, et cetera, will be winners. Uh, we think New York and San Francisco will be losers. But even within, uh, on a relative basis, that is, within a market like New York or, or any market, we think there will also be winners and losers in terms of higher quality buildings, faring better, I think there's going to be a greater as, – as tenants eventually think about how they implement their uh, remote work uh, and work flexibility with their employees, the office will remain a, a fixture for most companies, but the utilization will change. I think companies uh, – at least some companies will, will implement a bit more hot desking. The Wall Street Journal recently had a story about the death of the desk, saying your office may survive, but your desk probably won't. So we think – Implicit in our forecast is some greater adoption of hot desking and some degree of losing personal space. So as companies migrate more toward higher quality buildings, there will wait, be wait, I wait, think wait, the lower wait. quality older buildings will suffer more. You know this hot desk. I, I don't know. I I don't think the HR department is going to like the sound of this. You know, a lot closer proximity and a hot desk. It sounds like the kind of thing that got a lot of people into trouble. Okay, I'm just going to get that out there. Hey, apropos. <laughs> Of uh, you know companies uh, losing money like the hotel reads losing money and nobody seeming to care very much because of the accessibility of uh, cheap and ever so confident uh, workout capital. Here is uh, the fellow who started uh, Carrier. His name last name was uh, Carrier, and um, uh, his view was that only capitalized, only profitable companies, only profitable businesses could work. He said, "Quote: I fish only for edible fish." 
would be a better way to say. I fish only for edible fish and hunt only for edible game, even in the laboratory. And one of the things that's different now, this harkens back to what we all agreed to before, was that, uh, you know, the kind of the worse, the better, right? This, this, this year has been, the past 12 months or so, has been an extraordinary time for unprofitable companies. It's been an extraordinary time for zombie companies, meaning companies that aren't earning the cash flow, not EBITDA, but earnings before interest and taxes to service mm-hmm. debt over the course of uh, three average years, right? So, so all of this adds up, it seems to me, to the likelihood you're not going to see many investment bargains. But, Michael Wilkins, do you see at Green Street, do you see any really compelling investment values out there in the real estate world, in the real estate investment trust world, in the private world, what have you? But there are, our listeners have to know if there are any great bargains, because they're going to go out and snatch them up for the other podcast listeners to get to them. So tell us. Right, right. So overall, we think real estate is actually cheap in the private market. So we look at that uh, compared to um, corporate bond yields. Uh, we don't we we don't look at uh, sovereign bond yields. We like to have mm-hmm. something with some uh, credit risk uh, embedded in it. So relative to corporate bond yields, uh, real estate in the private market looks cheap. Now again, I mentioned. COVID has created the greatest divergence between winners and losers we've seen. Um, and, and so uh, the broad brush statement of real estate is cheap has to be nuanced with, well, it depends what you're looking at. Um, Green Street's always had a preference for uh, lower CapEx property types, which are like those sectors uh, that are less capital intensive over time tend to be uh, more attractively valued. Uh, that tends to be true both in the private market and in the public market. So we've long thought that CapEx is not properly uh, accounted for uh, in, in a true buy and hold type uh, analysis of, of real estate pricing. Uh, so with that being said, some of the things we like are um, some of the residential sectors. So we really like manufactured housing. We like single family um, rentals right now, which are, are extremely hot in terms of the, the operating fundamentals. Um, we like also uh, net lease uh, casino um, investments, which is predominantly a public market vehicle, and that's one of my uh, top uh, individual security picks that, that we have at Green Street, and I can talk more about that in a minute. I'm sure the listeners might be interested in that. It's actually a really good yield play. Um, so those are some of the things we like, and in the public market, we like some of those same, same things, so the, the net lease gaming, manufactured housing, uh, single-family rental, and the apartment space, which we think um, is not so attractively priced in the private market, but we still feel that it's overly discounted in the public market. Um, so, and then by contrast, some of the things we dislike are the higher capex property types. Uh, office uh, being one of uh, one of the higher capex uh, sectors. Lodging, we were just talking about that, is also capex intensive. Uh, so that tends to screen. Um, less attractive for us. Lodging lodging and office really are good trading businesses. And so again, this analysis I'm referring to is, is more of a buy and hold approach. So lodging and office typically won't fare as well. Um, but historically, those have been more trading business. So Mike, um, Mike in, the, in, the, in, the, in the two minutes we have left, do tell us about yield opportunities in the, uh, in the gambling business. Oh, gaming. I forgot to, I forgot to use the, <laughs> the gaming business. So what if I told you there was a secure cash flow stream uh, where you could generate a uh, roughly a 6% dividend 
dividend yield that has coverage uh, and where the underlying rent payment that the REIT is collecting is well covered and the REIT uh, didn't miss any of the rent payments due during the pandemic. So the, the ticker here is MGP, uh, and that is the REIT associated with MGM, the casino operator. So uh, the gaming REIT business was uh, created during this cycle several years ago. There's really three REITs that um, uh, are, are basically tied largely to one operator. So uh, MGP is the REIT associated with MGM. MGM continues to own uh, a very large stake uh, in the REIT. And as such, it's, it's really under-owned by a lot of the indices. Um, and so that's an opportunity. It's, it's a little bit ignored, uh, but the rent coverage is, is pretty solid from the operations. There was MGM is pretty liquid. And so the credit profile combined with uh, MGM's liquidity is, is pretty good. Pre-COVID, the, the rent coverage was about two times. You know, the EBITDA was uh, two times the rent, and there have been margin improvements to the business since COVID. So obviously, some of the Vegas casinos are still getting back to, to normal, obviously, but um, no rent payments were missed. 6% dividend yield. We like that one a lot. It feels like equity-like returns for um, bond-like yeah, risks because right. these are long-term triple net leases. So we, we like that one quite a bit. Michael, not thank you. This has been most educational and most interesting. And uh, keep these uh, wonderful analyses coming. That's my request of Green Street. Michael Dodd, I thank you for being with us. Evan, delightful as always. Uh, Olatan, uh, thanks for an excellent job in your capacity as sound engineer. Uh, I am Jim Grant. On behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, uh, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>